0: Section 10 of Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World by Anonymous The Mild Magnanimity of Women A late eminent anatomist, in a professional discourse on the female frame, is said to have declared that it almost appeared an act of cruelty in nature to produce such a being as woman. This remark may, indeed, be the natural exclamation of refined sensibility in contemplating the various maladies to which a creature of such delicate organs is inevitably exposed. But if we take a more enlarged survey of human existence we shall be far from discovering any just reason to arraign the benevolence of its provident and gracious author. If the delicacy of woman must render her familiar with pain and sickness, let us remember that her charms, her pleasures and her happiness arise also from the same attractive quality. She is a being to use the forcible and elegant expression of a poet, fine by defect and admirably weak. There is perhaps no charm by which she more effectually secures the tender admiration and the lasting love of the more hardy sex than her superior endurance, her mild and graceful submission to the common evils of life. Nor is this the sole advantage she derives from her gentle fortitude. It is the prerogative of this lovely virtue, to lighten the pressure of all those incorrigible evils which it cheerfully endures. The frame of man may be compared to the sturdy oak, which is often shattered by resisting the tempest. Woman is the pliant osier, which, in bending to the storm, eludes its violence. The accurate observers of human nature will readily allow that patience is most eminently the characteristic of woman. To what a sublime and astonishing height this virtue has been carried by beings of the most delicate texture. We have striking examples in the many female martyrs who were exposed in the first ages of Christianity to the most barbarous and lingering torture. Nor was it only from Christian zeal that woman derived the power of defying the utmost rigours of persecution with invincible fortitude. Saint Ambrose, in his elaborate and pious treatise on this subject, Records the resolution of a fair disciple of Pythagoras, who, being severely urged by a tyrant to reveal the secrets of her sex, to convince him that no torments should reduce her to so unworthy a breach of her vow, bit her own tongue asunder, and darted it in the face of her oppressor. In consequence of those happy changes which have taken place in the world, from the progress of purified religion, the inexpressible spirit of the tender sex is no longer exposed to such inhuman trials. But if the earth is happily delivered from the demons of torture and superstition, if beauty and innocence are no more in danger of being dragged to perish at the stake, perhaps there are situations in female life that require as much patience and magnanimity as were formerly exerted in the fiery torments of the virgin martyr. It is more difficult to support an accumulation of minute infelicities than any single calamity of the most terrific magnitude. Female Delicacy Where the human race has little other culture than what it receives from nature, the two sexes live together, unconscious of almost any restraint on their words or on their actions. The Greeks, in the heroic ages, as appears from the whole history of their conduct, were totally unacquainted with delicacy. The Romans in the infancy of their empire were the same. Tacitus informs us that the ancient Germans had not separate beds for the two sexes, but that they lay promiscuously on reeds or on heath, spread along the walls of their houses. This custom still prevails in Lapland, among the peasants of Norway, Poland and Russia and it is not altogether obliterated in some parts of the highlands of Scotland and Wales. In Otaheite, to appear naked or in clothes are circumstances equally indifferent to both sexes. Nor does any word in their language nor any action to which they are prompted by nature seem more indelicate or reprehensible than another. Such are the effects of a total want of culture. Effects not very dissimilar are, in France and Italy, produced from a redundance of it. Though those are the polite countries in Europe, women there set themselves above shame and despise delicacy. It is laughed out of existence as a silly and unfashionable weakness. But in China, one of the politest countries in Asia, and perhaps not even in this respect behind France or Italy, the case is quite otherwise... No human being can be more delicate than a Chinese woman in her dress, in her behaviour and in her conversation. And should she ever happen to be exposed in any unbecoming manner, she feels with the greatest poignancy the awkwardness of her situation, and if possible covers her face that she may not be known. In the midst of so many discordant appearances, the mind is perplexed and can hardly fix upon any cause to which female delicacy is to be ascribed. If we attend, however, to the whole animal creation, if we consider it attentively wherever it falls under our observation, it will discover to us that in the female there is a greater degree of delicacy, or coy reserve, than in the male. Is not this a proof that, through the wide extent of creation, the seeds of delicacy are more liberally bestowed upon females than upon males?' In the remotest periods of which we have any historical account, we find that the women had a delicacy to which the other sex were strangers. Rebecca veiled herself when she first approached Isaac, her future husband. Many of the fables of antiquity mark, with the most distinguishing characters, the force of female delicacy. Of this kind is the fable of Actaeon and Diana. Actaeon, a famous hunter being in the woods with his hounds, beating for game, accidentally spied Diana and her nymphs bathing in a river. Prompted by curiosity, he stole silently into a neighbouring thicket that he might have a nearer view of them. The goddess discovering him was so affronted at his audacity and so much ashamed to have been seen naked that in revenge she immediately transformed him into a stag, set his own hounds upon him, and encourage them to overtake and devour him. Besides this and other fables and historical anecdotes of antiquity, their poets seldom exhibit a female character without adorning it with the graces of modesty and delicacy. Hence we may infer that these qualities have not been only essential to virtuous women in civilised countries, but were also constantly praised and esteemed by men of sensibility, and that delicacy is an innate principle, in the female mind. There are so many evils attending the loss of virtue in women, and so greatly are the minds of that sex depraved when they have deviated from the path of rectitude, that a general contamination of their morals may be considered as one of the greatest misfortunes that can befall a state, as in time it destroys almost every public virtue of the men. Hence all wise legislators, have strictly enforced upon the sex a particular purity of manners, and not satisfied that they should abstain from vice only, have required them even to shun every appearance of it. Such in some periods were the laws of the Romans, and such were the effects of these laws, that if ever female delicacy shone forth in a conspicuous manner, it was perhaps among these people, after they had worn off much of the barbarity of their first ages, and before they became contaminated by the wealth and manners of the nations which they plundered and subjected. Then it was that we find many of their women surpassing in modesty almost everything related by fable. And then it was that their ideas of delicacy were so highly refined that they could not even bear the secret consciousness of an involuntary crime, and far less of having tacitly consented to it. Influence of Female Society The company of ladies has a very powerful influence on the sentiments and conduct of men. Women, the fruitful source of half our joys and perhaps of more than half our sorrows, give an elegance to our manner and a relish to our pleasures. They soothe our afflictions and soften our cares. Too much of their company will render us effeminate And infallibly stamp upon as many signatures of the female nature a rough and unpolished behavior as well as slovenliness of person will certainly be the consequence of an almost constant exclusion from it by spending a reasonable portion of our time in the company of women and another in the company of our own sex we shall imbibe a proper share of the softness of the female and at the same time retain the firmness and constancy of the male. As little social intercourse subsisted between the two sexes, in the more early ages of antiquity we find the men less courteous and the women less engaging. Vivacity and cheerfulness seem hardly to have existed. Even the Babylonians, who appear to have allowed their women more liberty than any of the ancients, seem not to have lived with them in a friendly and familiar manner. But, as their intercourse with them was considerably greater than that of the neighbouring nations, they acquired thereby a polish and refinement unknown to any of the people who surrounded them. The manners of both sexes were softer and better calculated to please. They likewise paid more attention to cleanliness and dress. After the Greeks became famous for their knowledge of the arts and sciences, Their rudeness and barbarity were only softened a few degrees. It is not therefore arts, sciences and learning, but the company of the other sex, that forms the manner and renders the man agreeable. The Romans were, for some time, a community without anything to soften the ferocity of male nature. The Sabine virgins, whom they had stolen, appear to have infused into them the first ideas of politeness but it was many ages before this politeness banished the roughness of the warrior and assumed the refinement of the gentleman during the times of chivalry female influence was at the zenith of its glory and perfection it was the source of valor it gave birth to politeness it awakened pity it called forth benevolence It restricted the hand of oppression and meliorated the human heart. I cannot approach my mistress, said one, till I have done some glorious deed to deserve her notice. Actions should be the messengers of the heart. They are the homage due to beauty, and they only should discover love. Marsan, instructing a young knight how to behave so as to gain the favour of the fair, these remarkable words when your arm is raised if your lance fail draw your sword directly and let heaven and hell resound with the clash lifeless is the soul which beauty cannot animate and weak is the arm which cannot fight valiantly to defend it the Russians Poles and even the Dutch pay less attention to their females than any of their neighbors and are by consequence less distinguished for the graces of their persons and the feelings of their hearts. The lightness of their food and the salubrity of their air have been assigned as reasons for the vivacity and cheerfulness of the French, and their fortitude in supporting their spirits through all the adverse circumstances of this world. But the constant mixture of the young and old, of the two sexes, is no doubt one of the principal reasons why the cares and ills of life sit lighter on the shoulders of that fantastic people than on those of any other country in the world. The French reckon an excursion dull and a party of pleasure without relish, unless a mixture of both sexes join to compose it. The French women do not even withdraw from the table after meals, nor do the men discover that impatience to have them dismissed which they so often do in England. It is alleged by those who have no relish for the conversation of the fair sex that their presence curbs the freedom of speech and restrains the jollity of mirth. But if the conversation and the mirth are decent, if the company are capable of relishing anything but wine, the very reverse is the case. Ladies in general are not only more cheerful than gentlemen, but more eager to promote mirth and good humour. So powerful, indeed, are the company and conversation of the fair in diffusing happiness and hilarity, that even the cloud which hangs on the thoughtful brow of an Englishman begins in the present age to brighten by his devoting to the ladies a larger share of time than was formerly done by his ancestors. Though the influence of the sexes be reciprocal, yet that of the ladies is certainly the greatest. How often may one see a company of men who were disposed to be riotous, checked at once into decency by the accidental entrance of an amiable woman, while her good sense and obliging deportment charms them into at least a temporary conviction that there is nothing so delightful as female conversation in its best form. Were such conviction frequently repeated, what might we not expect from it at last? Were virtue, said an ancient philosopher, to appear amongst men in a visible shape What vehement desires would she enkindle? Virtue, exhibited without affectation, by a lovely young person of improved understanding and gentle manners, may be said to appear with the most alluring aspect, surrounded by the graces. It would be an easy matter to point out instances of the most evident reformation wrought on particular men, by their having happily conceived a passion for virtuous women. To form the manners of men, Various causes contribute, but nothing perhaps so much as the turn of the women with whom they converse. Those who are most conversant with women of virtue and understanding will be always found the most amiable characters of the circumstances being supposed alike. Such society, beyond everything else, rubs off the corners that gives many of our sex an ungracious roughness. It produces a polish more perfect and more pleasing than that which is received from a general commerce with the world. This last is often specious, but commonly superficial. The other is the result of gentler feelings and more humanity. The heart itself is moulded. Habits of undissembled courtesy are formed. A certain flowing urbanity is acquired. Violent passions, rash oaths, coarse jests, indelicate language of every kind, are precluded and disrelished. Female society gives men a taste for cleanliness and elegance of person. Our ancestors, who kept but little company with their women, were not only slovenly in their dress, but had their countenances disfigured with long beards. By female influence, however, beards were, in process of time, mutilated down to moustaches. As the gentlemen found that the ladies had no great relish for moustaches, which were the relics of a beard, they cut and curled them into various fashions to render them more agreeable. At last, however, finding such labour vain, they gave them up altogether. But as those of the three learned professions were supposed to be endowed with, or at least to stand in need of, more wisdom than other people, and as the longest beard had always been deemed to sprout from the wisest chin, To supply this mark of distinction which they had lost, they contrived to smother their heads in enormous quantities of frizzled hair, that they might bear greater resemblance to an owl, the bird sacred to wisdom and Minerva. To female society it has been objected by the learned and studious that it enervates the mind and gives it such a turn for trifling, levity and dissipation as renders it altogether unfit for that application which is necessary in order to become eminent in any of the sciences. In proof of this they allege that the greatest philosophers seldom or never were men who enjoyed or were fit for the company or conversation of women. Sir Isaac Newton hardly ever conversed with any of the sex. Bacon, Boyle, Descartes, and many others conspicuous for their learning and application were but indifferent companions to the fair it is certain indeed that the youth who devotes his whole time and attention to female conversation and the little offices of gallantry never distinguishes himself in the literary world but notwithstanding this without the fatigue and application of severe study he often obtains by female interest that which is denied to the merited improvements acquired by the labour of many years. End of section 10.